The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski American Primacy and its Geostrategic Imperatives For my students, to help them shape tomorrow's world. Introduction Superpower Politics Ever since the continents started interacting politically, some 500 years ago, Eurasia has been the center of world power. In different ways, at different times, the peoples inhabiting Eurasia, though mostly those from its Western European periphery, penetrated and dominated the world's other regions, as individual Eurasian states attained the special status and enjoyed the privileges of being the world's premier powers. The last decade of the 20th century has witnessed a tectonic shift in world affairs. For the first time ever, a non-Eurasian power has emerged not only as the key arbiter of Eurasian power relations, but also as the world's paramount power. The defeat and collapse of the Soviet Union was the final step in the rapid ascendance of a Western Hemisphere power, the United States, as the sole and indeed the first truly global power. Eurasia, however, retains its geopolitical importance. Not only is its Western periphery, Europe, still the location of much of the world's political and economic power, but its Eastern region, Asia, has lately become a vital center of economic growth and rising political influence. Hence, the issue of how a globally engaged America copes with the complex Eurasian power relationships and particularly whether it prevents the emergence of a dominant and antagonistic Eurasian power remains central to America's capacity to exercise global primacy. It follows that, in addition to cultivating the various novel dimensions of power, technology, communications, information, as well as trade and finance, American foreign policy must remain concerned with the geopolitical dimension and must employ its influence in Eurasia in a manner that creates a stable continental equilibrium, with the United States as the political arbiter. Eurasia is thus the chessboard on which the struggle for global primacy continues to be played, and that struggle involves geostrategy, the strategic management of geopolitical interests. It is noteworthy that as recently as 1940, two aspirants to global power, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, agreed explicitly in the secret negotiations of November that year that America should be excluded from Eurasia. Each realized that the injection of American power into Eurasia would preclude his ambitions regarding global domination. Each shared the assumption that Eurasia is the center of the world and that he who controls Eurasia controls the world. A half-century later, the issue has been redefined. Will America's primacy in Eurasia endure? And to what ends might it be applied? The ultimate objective of American policy should be benign and visionary, to shape a truly cooperative global community, in keeping with long-range trends and with the fundamental interests of humankind. But, in the meantime, it is imperative that no Eurasian challenger emerges, capable of dominating Eurasia and thus also of challenging America. The formation of a comprehensive and integrated Eurasian geostrategy is therefore the purpose of this book. Signed, Zbigniew Brzezinski, Washington, D.C., April 1997. Chapter 1. Hegemony of a New Type Hegemony is as old as mankind. But America's current global supremacy is distinctive in the rapidity of its emergence, in its global scope, and in the manner of its exercise. 
In the course of a single century, America has transformed itself and has also been transformed by international dynamics. From a country relatively isolated in the Western Hemisphere into a power of unprecedented worldwide reach and grasp. The Short Road to Global Supremacy The Spanish-American War in 1898 was America's first overseas war of conquest. It thrust American power far into the Pacific, beyond Hawaii to the Philippines. By the turn of the century, American strategists were already busy developing doctrines for a two-ocean naval supremacy, and the American Navy had begun to challenge the notion that Britain rules the waves. American claims of a special status as the sole guardian of the Western Hemisphere's security, proclaimed earlier in the century by the Monroe Doctrine, and subsequently justified by America's alleged manifest destiny, were even further enhanced by the construction of the Panama Canal which facilitated naval domination over both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. The basis for America's expanding geopolitical ambitions was provided by the rapid industrialization of the country's economy. By the outbreak of World War I, America's growing economic might already accounted for about 33% of global GNP, which displaced Great Britain as the world's leading industrial power. This remarkable economic dynamism was fostered by a culture that favored experimentation and innovation. America's political institutions and free market economy created unprecedented opportunities for ambitious and iconoclastic inventors, who were not inhibited from pursuing their personal dreams by archaic privileges or rigid social hierarchies. In brief, national culture was uniquely congenial to economic growth and by attracting and quickly assimilating the most talented individuals from abroad, the culture also facilitated the expansion of national power. World War I provided the first occasion for the massive projection of American military force into Europe, and heretofore relatively isolated power promptly transported several hundred thousand of its troops across the Atlantic, a trans-oceanic military expedition unprecedented in its size and scope which signaled the emergence of a new major player in the international arena. Just as important, the war also prompted the first major American diplomatic effort to apply American principles in seeking a solution to Europe's international problems. Woodrow Wilson's famous 14 points represented the injection into European geopolitics of American idealism, reinforced by American might. A decade and a half earlier, the United States had played a leading role in settling a Far Eastern conflict between Russia and Japan, thereby also asserting its growing international stature. The fusion of American idealism and American power thus made itself fully felt on the world scene. Strictly speaking, however, World War I was still predominantly a European war, not a global one. But its self-destructive character marked the beginning of the end of Europe's political, economic, and cultural preponderance over the rest of the world. In the course of the war, no single European power was able to prevail decisively, and the war's outcome was heavily influenced by the entrance into the conflict of the rising non-European power, America. Thereafter, Europe would become increasingly the object rather than the subject of global power politics. However, this brief burst of American global leadership did not produce a continuing American engagement in world affairs. Instead, America quickly retreated into a self-gratifying combination of isolationism and idealism. Although by the mid-twenties and early thirties, totalitarianism was gathering strength on the European continent, American power, 
by then, including a powerful two-ocean fleet that clearly outmatched the British Navy, remained disengaged. Americans preferred to be bystanders to global politics. Consistent with that predisposition was the American concept of security, based on a view of America as a continental island. American strategy focused on sheltering its shores and was thus narrowly national in scope, with little thought given to international or global considerations. The critical international players were still the European powers, and increasingly Japan. The European era in world politics came to a final end in the course of World War II, the first truly global war. Fought on three continents simultaneously, with the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans also heavily contested, its global dimension was symbolically demonstrated when British and Japanese soldiers, representing, respectively, a remote Western European island and a similarly remote East Asian island, collided thousands of miles from their homes on the Indian-Burmese frontier. Europe and Asia had become a single battlefield. Had the war's outcome been a clear-cut victory for Nazi Germany, a single European power might then have emerged as globally preponderant. Japan's victory in the Pacific would have gained for that nation the dominant Far Eastern role, but in all probability, Japan would still have remained only a regional hegemon. Instead, Germany's defeat was sealed largely by the two extra-European victors, the United States and the Soviet Union, which became the successors to Europe's unfulfilled quest for global supremacy. The next few years were dominated by the bipolar American-Soviet contest for global supremacy. In some respects, the contest between the United States and the Soviet Union represented the fulfillment of the geopolitician's fondest theories. It pitted the world's leading maritime power, dominant over both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, against the world's leading land power, paramount on the Eurasian heartland, with the Sino-Soviet bloc encompassing a space remarkably reminiscent of the scope of the Mongol Empire. The geopolitical dimension could not have been clearer. North America versus Eurasia, with the world at stake, the winner would truly dominate the globe. There was no one else to stand in the way once victory was finally grasped. Each rival projected worldwide an ideological appeal that was infused with historical optimism that justified for each the necessary exertions while reinforcing its conviction in inevitable victory. Each rival was clearly dominant within its own space. Unlike the imperial European aspirants to global hegemony, none of which ever quite succeeded in asserting decisive preponderance within Europe itself, and each used its ideology to reinforce its hold over its respective vassals and tributaries, in a manner somewhat reminiscent of the age of religious warfare. The combination of global geopolitical scope and the proclaimed universality of the competing dogmas gave the contest unprecedented intensity, but an additional factor, also imbued with global implications, made the contest truly unique. The advent of nuclear weapons meant that a head-on war of a classical type between the two principal contestants would not only spell their mutual destruction, but could unleash lethal consequences for a significant portion of humanity. The intensity of the conflict was thus simultaneously subjected to extraordinary self-restraint on the part of both rivals. In the geopolitical realm, the conflict was waged largely on the peripheries of Eurasia itself, the Sino-Soviet bloc dominated most of Eurasia, but did not control its peripheries. 
North America succeeded in entrenching itself on both the extreme western and extreme eastern shores of the great Eurasian continent. The defense of these continental bridgeheads, epitomized on the western front by the Berlin blockade and on the eastern by the Korean War, was thus the first strategic test of what came to be known as the Cold War. In the Cold War's final phase, a third defensive front, the southern, appeared on Eurasia's map. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan precipitated a two-pronged American response. Direct U.S. assistance to the native resistance in Afghanistan in order to bog down the Soviet army, and a large-scale buildup of the U.S. military presence in the Persian Gulf as a deterrent to any further southward projection of Soviet political or military power. The United States committed itself to the defense of the Persian Gulf region on a par with its western and eastern Eurasian security interests. The successful containment by North America of the Eurasian bloc's effort to gain effective sway over all Eurasia, with both sides deterred until the very end from a direct military collision, for fear of nuclear war, meant that the outcome of the contest was eventually decided by non-military means. Political vitality, ideological flexibility, economic dynamism, and cultural appeal became the decisive dimensions. The American-led coalition retained its unity, whereas the Sino-Soviet bloc split within less than two decades. In part, this was due to the democratic coalition's greater flexibility, in contrast to the hierarchical and dogmatic, but also brittle, character of the communist camp. The former involved shared values, but without a formal doctrinal format. The latter emphasized dogmatic orthodoxy, with only one valid interpretive center. America's principal vassals were also significantly weaker than America, whereas the Soviet Union could not indefinitely treat China as a subordinate. The outcome was also due to the fact that the American side proved to be economically and technologically much more dynamic, whereas the Soviet Union gradually stagnated and could not effectively compete either in economic growth or in military technology. Economic decay in turn fostered ideological demoralization. In fact, Soviet military power, and the fear it inspired among Westerners, for a long time obscured the essential asymmetry between the two contestants. America was simply much richer, technologically much more advanced, militarily more resilient and innovative, socially more creative and appealing. Ideological constraints also sapped the creative potential of the Soviet Union, making its system increasingly rigid and its economy increasingly wasteful and technologically less competitive. As long as a mutually destructive war did not break out, in protracted competition, the scales had to tip eventually in America's favor. The final outcome was also significantly influenced by cultural considerations. The American-led coalition, by and large, accepted as positive many attributes of America's political and social culture. America's two most important allies on the western and eastern peripheries of the Eurasian continent, Germany and Japan, both recovered their economic health in the context of almost unbridled admiration for all things American. America was widely perceived as representing the future, as a society worthy of admiration and deserving of emulation. In contrast, Russia was held in cultural contempt by most of its Central European vassals, and even more so by its principal and increasingly assertive Eastern ally, China. For the Central Europeans, 
Russian domination meant isolation from what the Central Europeans considered their philosophical and cultural home, Western Europe and its Christian religious traditions. Worse than that, it meant domination by a people whom the Central Europeans, often unjustly, considered their cultural inferior. The Chinese, for whom the word Russian means the hungry land, were even more openly contemptuous. Although initially the Chinese had only quietly contested Moscow's claims of universality for the Soviet model, within a decade following the Chinese Communist Revolution, they mounted an assertive challenge to Moscow's ideological primacy and even began to express openly their traditional contempt for the neighboring northern barbarians. Finally, within the Soviet Union itself, the 50% of the population that was non-Russian eventually also rejected Moscow's domination. The gradual political awakening of the non-Russians meant that the Ukrainians, Georgians, Armenians, and Azerians began to view Soviet power as a form of alien imperial domination by a people to whom they did not feel culturally inferior. In Central Asia, national aspirations may have been weaker, but here these peoples were fueled, in addition, by a gradually rising sense of Islamic identity, intensified by the knowledge of the ongoing decolonization elsewhere. Like so many empires before it, the Soviet Union eventually imploded and fragmented, falling victim not so much to a direct military defeat as to disintegration accelerated by economic and social strains. Its fate confirmed a scholar's apt observation that empires are inherently politically unstable because subordinate units almost always prefer greater autonomy and counter-elites in such units almost always act upon opportunity to obtain greater autonomy. In this sense, empires do not fall, rather they fall apart, usually very slowly, though sometimes remarkably quickly. The First Global Power The collapse of its rival left the United States in a unique position. It became simultaneously the first and the only truly global power. And yet, America's global supremacy is reminiscent in some ways of earlier empires, notwithstanding their more confined regional scope. These empires based their power on a hierarchy of vassals, tributaries, protectorates, and colonies, with those on the outside generally viewed as barbarians. To some degree, that anachronistic terminology is not altogether inappropriate for some of the states currently within the American orbit. As in the past, the exercise of American imperial power is derived in large measure from superior organization, from the ability to mobilize vast economic and technological resources promptly for military purposes, from the vague but significant cultural appeal of the American way of life, and from the sheer dynamism and inherent competitiveness of the American social and political elites. Earlier empires, too, partook of these attributes. Rome comes first to mind. Its empire was established over roughly two and a half centuries through sustained territorial expansion northward and then both westward and southeastward, as well as through the assertion of effective maritime control over the entire shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. In geographic scope, it reached its high point around the year A.D. 211. Rome's was a centralized polity and a single self-sufficient economy. Its imperial power was exercised deliberately and purposefully through a complex system of political and economic organization, 
a strategically designed system of roads and naval routes originating from the capital city permitted the rapid redeployment and concentration in the event of a major security threat of the Roman legions stationed in various vassal states and tributary provinces. At the empire's apex, the Roman legions deployed abroad numbered no less than 300,000 men, a remarkable force made all the more lethal by Roman superiority in tactics and arraignments, as well as by the center's ability to direct relatively rapid redeployment. It is striking to note that in 1996, the vastly more populous supreme power, America, was protecting the outer reaches of its dominion by stationing 296,000 professional soldiers overseas. Rome's imperial power, however, was also derived from an important psychological reality. Civiso Romanus Sum, I am a Roman citizen, was the highest possible self-definition, a source of pride and an aspiration for many, eventually granted even to those not of Roman birth. The exalted status of the Roman citizen was an expression of cultural superiority that justified the imperial power's sense of mission. It not only legitimized Rome's rule, but it also inclined those subject to it to desire assimilation and inclusion in the imperial structure. Cultural superiority, taken for granted by the rulers and conceded by the subjugated, thus reinforced imperial power. That supreme and largely uncontested imperial power lasted about 300 years. With the exception of the challenge posed at one stage by nearby Carthage and on the eastern fringes by the Parthian Empire, the outside world was largely barbaric, not well organized, capable for most of the time only of sporadic attacks and culturally patently inferior. As long as the empire was able to maintain internal vitality and unity, the outside world was non-competitive. Three major causes led to the eventual collapse of the Roman Empire. First, the empire became too large to be governed from a single center, but splitting into western and eastern halves automatically destroyed the monopolistic character of its power. Second, at the same time, the prolonged period of imperial hubris generated a cultural hedonism that gradually sapped the political elite's will to greatness. Third, Sustained inflation also undermined the capacity of the system to sustain itself without social sacrifice, which the citizens were no longer prepared to make. Cultural decay, political division, and financial inflation conspired to make Rome vulnerable even to the barbarians in its near abroad. By contemporary standards, Rome was not truly a global power, but a regional one. However, Given the sense of isolation prevailing at the time between the various continents of the globe, its regional power was self-contained and isolated, with no immediate or even distant rival. The Roman Empire was thus a world unto itself, with its superior political organization and cultural superiority making it a precursor of later imperial systems of even greater geographic scope. Even so, the Roman Empire was not unique. The Roman and the Chinese empires emerged almost contemporaneously, though neither was aware of the other. By the year 221 BC, the time of the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, the unification by Qin of the existing seven states into the first Chinese empire had prompted the construction of the Great Wall in northern China to seal off the inner kingdom from the barbarian world beyond. The subsequent Han Empire, which had started to emerge by 140 BC, 
was even more impressive in scope and organization. By the onset of the Christian era, no fewer than 57 million people were subject to its authority. That huge number, itself unprecedented, testified to extraordinarily effective central control exercised through a centralized and punitive bureaucracy. Imperial sway extended to today's Korea, parts of Mongolia, and most of today's coastal China. However, rather like Rome, the Han Empire also became afflicted by internal ills, and its eventual collapse was accelerated by its division in AD 220 into three independent realms. China's further history involved cycles of reunification and expansion, followed by decay and fragmentation. More than once, China succeeded in establishing imperial systems that were self-contained, isolated, and unchallenged externally by any organized rivals. The tripartite division of the Han realm was reversed in AD 589, with something akin to an imperial system re-emerging. But the period of China's greatest imperial self-assertion came under the Manchus, specifically during the early Qing dynasty. By the 18th century, China was once again a full-fledged empire, with the imperial center surrounded by vassal and tributary states, including today's Korea, Indochina, Thailand, Burma, and Nepal. China's sway thus extended from today's Russia, far east, all the way across southern Siberia to Lake Baikal and into contemporary Kazakhstan, then southward toward the Indian Ocean, and then back east across Laos and northern Vietnam. As in the Roman case, the empire was a complex financial, economic, educational, and security organization. Control over the large territory and the more than 300 million people living within it was exercised through all these means with a strong emphasis on centralized political authority, supported by a remarkably effective courier service. The entire empire was demarcated into four zones, radiating from Peking and delimiting areas that could be reached by courier within one week, two weeks, three weeks, and four weeks, respectively. A centralized bureaucracy, professionally trained and competitively selected, provided the sinews of unity. That unity was reinforced, legitimated, and sustained, again, as in the case of Rome, by a strongly felt and deeply ingrained sense of cultural superiority that was augmented by Confucianism, an imperially expedient philosophy, with its stress on harmony, hierarchy, and discipline. China, the celestial empire, was seen as the center of the universe, with only barbarians on its peripheries and beyond. To be Chinese meant to be cultured, and, for that reason, the rest of the world owed China its due deference. That special sense of superiority permeated the response given by the Chinese emperor, even in the phase of China's growing decline in the late 18th century, to King George III of Great Britain, whose emissaries had attempted to envelge China into a trading relationship by offering some British industrial products as goodwill gifts. We, by the grace of heaven, Emperor, instruct the King of England to take note of our charge. The Celestial Empire, ruling all within the four seas, does not value rare and precious things, nor do we have the slightest need of your country's manufactures.
Hence we have commanded your tribute envoys to return safely home. You, O king, should simply act in conformity with our wishes by strengthening your loyalty and swearing perpetual obedience. The decline and fall of the several Chinese empires was also primarily due to internal factors. Mongol and later Occidental barbarians prevailed because internal fatigue, decay, hedonism, and loss of economic, as well as military creativity, sapped and then accelerated the collapse of Chinese will. Outside powers exploited China's internal malaise. Britain, in the Opium Wars of 1839-1842, to Japan a century later, which in turn generated the profound sense of cultural humiliation that has motivated the Chinese throughout the 20th century, a humiliation all the more intense because of the collision between their ingrained sense of cultural superiority and the demeaning political realities of post-imperial China. Much as in the case of Rome, imperial China would be classified today as a regional power. But in its heyday, China had no global peer, in the sense that no other power was capable of challenging its imperial status or even of resisting its further expansion if that had been the Chinese inclination. The Chinese system was self-contained and self-sustaining, based primarily on a shared ethnic identity. With relatively limited projection of central power over ethnically alien and geographically peripheral tributaries, the large and dominant ethnic core made it possible for China to achieve periodic imperial restoration. In that respect, China was quite unlike other empires, in which numerically small but hegemonically motivated peoples were able, for a time, to impose and maintain domination over much larger ethnically alien populations. However, once the domination of such small core empires was undermined, imperial restoration was out of the question. To find a somewhat closer analogy to today's definition of a global power, we must turn to the remarkable phenomena of the Mongol Empire. Its emergence was achieved through an intense struggle with major and well-organized opponents. Among those defeated were the kingdoms of Poland and Hungary the forces of the Holy Roman Empire, several Russian and Rus principalities, the Caliphate of Baghdad, and later, even the Sung Dynasty of China. Genghis Khan and his successors, by defeating their regional rivals, established centralized control over the territory that latter-day scholars of geopolitics have identified as the global heartland, or the pivot for world power. Their Eurasian continental empire ranged from the shores of the China Sea to Anatolia in Asia Minor and to Central Europe. It was not until the heyday of the Stalinist Sino-Soviet bloc that the Mongol Empire on the Eurasian continent was finally matched, insofar as the scope of centralized control over contiguous territory is concerned. The Roman, Chinese, and Mongol empires were regional precursors of subsequent aspirants to global power. In the case of Rome and China, as already noted, their imperial structures were highly developed, both politically and economically, while the widespread acceptance of the cultural superiority of the center exercised an important cementing role. In contrast, the Mongol Empire sustained political control by relying most directly on military conquest, followed by adaptation and even assimilation, to local conditions. Mongol imperial power 
was largely based on military domination, achieved through the brilliant and ruthless application of superior military tactics that combined a remarkable capacity for rapid movement of forces with their timely concentration. Mongol rule entailed no organized economic or financial system, nor was Mongol authority derived from any assertive sense of cultural superiority. The Mongol rulers were too thin numerically to represent a self-regenerating ruling class, and, in any case, the absence of a defined and self-conscious sense of cultural or even ethnic superiority deprived the imperial elite of the needed subjective confidence. In fact, the Mongol rulers proved quite susceptible to gradual assimilation by the often culturally more advanced peoples they had conquered. Thus, one of the grandsons of Genghis Khan, who had become the emperor of the Chinese part of the great Khan's realm, became a fervent propagator of Confucianism. Another became a devout Muslim in his capacity as the Sultan of Persia, and another became the culturally Persian ruler of Central Asia. It was that factor, assimilation of the rulers by the ruled because of the absence of a dominant political culture, as well as unresolved problems of succession to the great Khan, who had founded the empire, that caused the empire's eventual demise. The Mongol realm had become too big to be governed from a single center. But the solution attempted, dividing the empire into several self-contained parts, promoted still more rapid local assimilation and accelerated the imperial disintegration. After lasting two centuries, from 1206 to 1405, the world's largest land-based empire disappeared without a trace. Thereafter, Europe became both the focus of global power and the focus of the main struggles for global power. Indeed, in the course of approximately three centuries, the small northwestern periphery of the Eurasian continent attained, through the projection of maritime power and for the first time ever, genuine global domination as European power reached and asserted itself on every continent of the globe. It is noteworthy that the Western European imperial hegemons were demographically not very numerous, especially when compared to the numbers effectively subjugated. Yet by the beginning of the 20th century, outside of the Western Hemisphere, which two centuries earlier had also been subject to Western European control, and which was inhabited predominantly by European emigrants and their descendants. Only China, Russia, the Ottoman Empire, and Ethiopia were free of Western Europe's domination. However, Western European domination was not tantamount to the attainment of global power by Western Europe. The essential reality was that of Europe's civilizational, global supremacy, and of fragmented European continental power, unlike the land conquest of the Eurasian heartland by the Mongols or by the subsequent Russian Empire, European overseas imperialism was attained through ceaseless transoceanic exploration and the expansion of maritime trade. This process, however, also involved a continuous struggle among the leading European states, not only for the overseas dominions, but for hegemony within Europe itself. The geopolitically consequential fact was that Europe's global hegemony did not derive from hegemony in Europe by any single European power. Broadly speaking, until the middle of the 17th century, Spain was the paramount European power. By the late 15th century, it had also emerged as a major overseas imperial power, entertaining global ambitions. 
religion served as a unifying doctrine and as a source of imperial missionary zeal. Indeed, it took papal arbitration between Spain and its maritime rival, Portugal, to codify a formal division of the world into Spanish and Portuguese colonial spheres in the treaties of Tordesilla, 1494, and Zaragoza, 1529. Nonetheless, faced by English, French, and Dutch challenges, Spain was never able to assert genuine supremacy, either in Western Europe itself or across the oceans. Spain's preeminence gradually gave way to that of France. Until 1815, France was the dominant European power, though continuously checked by its European rivals, both on the continent and overseas. Under Napoleon, France came close to establishing true hegemony over Europe. Had it succeeded, it might have also gained the status of the dominant global power. However, its defeat by a European coalition re-established the continental balance of power. For the next century, until World War I, Great Britain exercised global maritime domination as London became the world's principal financial and trading center and the British Navy ruled the waves. Great Britain was clearly paramount overseas, but like the earlier European aspirants to global hegemony, the British Empire could not single-handedly dominate Europe. Instead, Britain relied on an intricate balance of power diplomacy and eventually on an Anglo-French entente to prevent continental domination by either Russia or Germany. The overseas British Empire was initially acquired through a combination of exploration, trade, and conquest. But much like its Roman and Chinese predecessors, or its French and Spanish rivals, it also derived a great deal of its staying power from the perception of British cultural superiority. That superiority was not only a matter of subjective arrogance on the part of the imperial ruling class, but was a perspective shared by many of the non-British subjects. In the words of South Africa's first black president, Nelson Mandela, quote, I was brought up in a British school, and at the time, Britain was the home of everything that was best in the world. I have not discarded the influence which Britain and British history and culture exercised on us, unquote. Cultural superiority, successfully asserted and quietly conceded, had the effect of reducing the need to rely on large military forces to maintain the power of the imperial center. By 1914, only a few thousand British military personnel and civil servants controlled about 11 million square miles and almost 400 million non-British peoples. In brief, Rome exercised its sway largely through superior military organization and cultural appeal. China relied heavily on an efficient bureaucracy to rule an empire based on shared ethnic identity, reinforcing its control through a highly developed sense of cultural superiority. The Mongol Empire combined advanced military tactics for conquest with an inclination toward assimilation as the basis for rule. The British, as well as the Spanish, Dutch, and French, gained preeminence as their flag followed their trade their control likewise reinforced by superior military organization and cultural assertiveness. But none of these empires were truly global. Even Great Britain was not a truly global power. It did not control Europe, but only balanced it. A stable Europe was crucial to British international preeminence, and Europe's self-destruction inevitably marked the end of British primacy. In contrast, the scope and pervasiveness of American global power today are unique. Not only does the United States control all the world's oceans and seas, 
but it has developed an assertive military capability for amphibious shore control that enables it to project its power inland and politically significant ways. Its military legions are firmly perched on the western and eastern extremities of Eurasia, and they also control the Persian Gulf. American vassals and tributaries, some yearning to be embraced by even more formal ties to Washington, dot the entire Eurasian continent, as the map on page 22 shows. America's economic dynamism provides the necessary precondition for the exercise of global primacy. Initially, immediately after World War II, America's economy stood apart from all others, accounting alone for more than 50% of the world's GNP, gross national product. The economic recovery of Western Europe and Japan, followed by the wider phenomenon of Asia's economic dynamism, that the American share of global GNP eventually had to shrink from the disproportionately high levels of the immediate post-war era. Nonetheless, by the time the subsequent Cold War had ended, America's share of global GNP, and more specifically, its share of the world's manufacturing output, had stabilized at about 30%, a level that had been the norm for most of this century, apart from those exceptional years immediately after World War II. More important, America had maintained, and has even widened, its lead in exploiting the latest scientific breakthroughs for military purposes thereby creating a technological peerless military establishment, the only one with effective global reach. All the while, it has maintained its strong competitive advantage in the economically decisive information technologies. American mastery in the cutting-edge sectors of tomorrow's economy suggests that American technological domination is not likely to be undone soon, especially given that in the economically decisive fields, Americans are maintaining or even widening their advantage in productivity over their Western European and Japanese rivals. To be sure, Russia and China are powers that resent this American hegemony. In early 1996, they jointly stated as much in the course of a visit to Beijing by Russia's president, Boris Yeltsin. Moreover, they possessed nuclear arsenals that could threaten vital U.S. interests. But the brutal fact is that for the time being, and for some time to come, although they can initiate a suicidal nuclear war, neither one of them can win it. Lacking the ability to project forces over long distances in order to impose their political will, and being technologically much more backward than America, they do not have the means to exercise, nor soon attain sustained political clout worldwide. In brief, America stands supreme in the four decisive domains of global power. Militarily, it has an unmatched global reach. Economically, it remains the main locomotive of global growth, even if challenged in some respects by Japan and Germany, neither of which enjoys the other attributes of global might. Technologically, it retains the overall lead in the cutting-edge areas of innovation, and culturally, despite some crassness, it enjoys an appeal that is unrivaled especially among the world's youth, all of which gives the United States a political clout that no other state comes close to matching. It is the combination of all four that makes America the only comprehensive global superpower. The American Global System Although America's international preeminence unavoidably evokes similarities to earlier imperial systems, 
the differences are more essential. They go beyond the questions of territorial scope. American global power is exercised through a global system of distinctly American design that mirrors the domestic American experience. Central to that domestic experience is the pluralistic character of both the American society and its political system. The earlier empires were built by aristocratic political elites and were in most cases ruled by essentially authoritarian or absolutist regimes. The bulk of the populations of the imperial states were either politically indifferent or, in more recent times, infected by imperialists' emotions and symbols. The quest for national glory, the white man's burden, la mission civile et triste, not to speak of the opportunities for personal profit, all served to mobilize support for imperial adventures and to sustain essentially hierarchical imperial power pyramids. The attitude of the American public toward the external projection of American power has become much more ambivalent. The public supported America's engagement in World War II, largely because of the shock effect of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The engagement of the United States in the Cold War was initially endorsed, more reluctantly, until the Berlin blockade and the subsequent Korean War. After the Cold War had ended, the emergence of the United States as the single global power did not evoke much public gloating, but rather elicited an inclination toward a more limited definition of American responsibilities abroad. Public opinion polls conducted in 1995 and 1996 indicated a general public preference for sharing global power with others rather than for its monopolistic exercise. Because of these domestic factors, the American global system emphasizes the technique of co-optation, as in the case of defeated rivals, Germany, Japan, and lately even Russia, to a much greater extent than the earlier imperial systems did. It likewise relies heavily on the indirect exercise of influence on dependent foreign elites, while drawing much benefit from the appeal of its democratic principles and institutions. All of the foregoing are reinforced by the massive but intangible impact of the American domination of global communications, popular entertainment, and mass culture, and by the potentially very tangible clout of America's technological edge and global military reach. Cultural domination has been an underappreciated facet of American global power. Whatever one may think of its aesthetic values, America's mass culture exercises a magnetic appeal, especially on the world's youth. Its attraction may be derived from the hedonistic quality of the lifestyle it projects, but its global appeal is undeniable. American television programs and films account for about three-fourths of the global market. American popular music is equally dominant, while American fads, eating habits, and even clothing are increasingly imitated worldwide. The language of the Internet is English, and an overwhelming proportion of the global computer chatter also originates from America, influencing the content of global conversation. Lastly, America has become a mecca for those seeking advanced education, with approximately half a million foreign students flocking to the United States, with many of the ablest never returning home. Graduates from American universities are to be found in almost every cabinet on every continent. The style of many foreign democratic politicians also increasingly emulates the American. Not only did John F. Kennedy find eager imitators abroad, 
but even more recent and less glorified American political leaders have become the object of careful study and political imitation. Politicians from cultures as disparate as the Japanese and the British, for example the Japanese Prime Minister of the mid-1990s, Ryutaro Hashimoto, and the British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and note the Tony, imitative of Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, or Bob Dole, find it perfectly appropriate to copy Bill Clinton's homey manners, populist common touch, and public relations techniques. Democratic ideals associated with the American political tradition further reinforced what some perceive as America's cultural imperialism. In the age of the most massive spread of the democratic form of government, the American political experience tends to serve as a standard for emulation. The spreading emphasis worldwide on the centrality of written constitution and on the supremacy of law over political expediency, no matter how short-changed in practice, has drawn upon the strength of American constitutionalism. In recent times, the adoption by the former communist countries of civilian supremacy over the military, especially as a precondition for NATO membership, has also been very heavily influenced by the United States' system of civil-military relations. The appeal and impact of the democratic American political system has also been accompanied by the growing attraction of the American entrepreneurial economic model, which stresses global free trade and uninhibited competition. As the Western welfare state, including its German emphasis on co-determination between entrepreneurs and trade unions, begins to lose its economic momentum, more Europeans are voicing the opinion that the more competitive and even ruthless American economic culture has to be emulated if Europe is not to fall further behind. Even in Japan, greater individualism in economic behavior is becoming recognized as a necessary concomitant of economic success. The American emphasis on political democracy and economic development thus combines to convey a simple ideological message that appeals to many. The quest for individual success enhances freedom while generating wealth. The resulting blend of idealism and egoism is a potent combination. Individual self-fulfillment is said to be a God-given right, that at the same time we can benefit others by setting an example and by generating wealth. It is a doctrine that attracts the energetic, the ambitious, and the highly competitive. As the imitation of American ways gradually pervades the world, it creates a more congenial setting for the exercise of the indirect and seemingly consensual American hegemony. And, as is the case of the domestic American system, that hegemony involves a complex structure of interlocking institutions and procedures designed to generate consensus and obscure asymmetries in power and influence. American global supremacy is thus buttressed by an elaborate system of alliances and coalitions that literally span the globe. The Atlantic Alliance, epitomized institutionally by NATO, links the most productive and influential states of Europe to America, making the United States a key participant even in intra-European affairs. The bilateral political and military ties with Japan bind the most powerful Asian economy to the United States, with Japan remaining, at least for the time being, essentially an American protectorate. America also participates in such nascent trans-Pacific multilateral organizations as the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, or APEC, making itself a key participant in that region's affairs. The Western Hemisphere is generally shielded from outside influences, 
enabling America to play the central role in existing hemispherical multilateral organizations. Special security arrangements in the Persian Gulf, especially after the brief punitive mission in 1991 against Iraq, have made that economically vital region into an American military preserve. Even the former Soviet space is permeated by various American-sponsored arrangements for closer cooperation with NATO, such as the Partnership for Peace. In addition, one must consider as part of the American system the global web of specialized organizations, especially the international financial institutions. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, and the World Bank can be said to represent global interests, and their constituency may be construed as the world. In reality, however, they are heavily American-dominated, and their origins are traceable to American initiative, particularly the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944. Unlike earlier empires, this vast and complex global system is not a hierarchical pyramid. Rather, America stands at the center of an interlocking universe, one in which power is exercised through continuous bargaining, dialogue, diffusion, and quest for formal consensus, even though that power originates ultimately from a single source, namely Washington, D.C. And that is where the power game has to be played, and played according to America's domestic rules. Perhaps the highest compliment that the world pays to the centrality of the democratic process in American global hegemony is the degree to which foreign countries are themselves drawn into domestic American political bargaining. To the extent that they can, foreign governments strive to mobilize those Americans with whom they share a special ethnic or religious identity. Most foreign governments also employ American lobbyists to advance their case, especially in Congress in addition to approximately 1,000 special foreign interest groups registered as active in America's capital. American ethnic communities also strive to influence U.S. foreign policy, with the Jewish, Greek, and Armenian lobbies standing out as the most effectively organized. American supremacy has thus produced a new international order that not only replicates, but institutionalizes abroad many of the features of the American system itself, its basic features include a collective security system, including integrated command and forces, NATO, the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, and so forth, regional economic cooperation, APEC, NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, and specialized global cooperative institutions, the World Bank, IMF, and World Trade Organization. Procedures that emphasize consensual decision-making, even if dominated by the United States. A preference for democratic membership within key alliances. A rudimentary global constitutional and judicial structure, ranging from the World Court to a special tribunal to try Bosnian war crimes. Most of that system emerged during the Cold War as part of America's effort to contain its global rival, the Soviet Union. It was thus ready-made for global application, once that rival faltered, and America emerged as the first and only global power. Its essence has been well encapsulated by the political scientist G. John Eikenberry. It was hegemonic in the sense that it was centered around the United States and reflected American-styled political mechanisms and organizing principles. It was a liberal order in that it was legitimate and marked by reciprocal interactions. Europeans, one may also add the Japanese, 
were able to reconstruct and integrate their societies and economies in ways that were with American hegemony, but also with room to experiment with their own autonomous and semi-independent political systems. The evolution of this complex system served to domesticate relations among the major Western states. There have been tense conflicts between these states from time to time, but the important point is that conflict has been contained within a deeply embedded, stable, and increasingly articulated political order. The threat of war is off the table. Currently, this unprecedented American global hegemony has no rival, but will it remain unchallenged in the years to come? End of chapter 1